everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And it is time for another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast, where we hand you all of our reviews and major segments from the Fantano channel throughout the week. In this episode, it is reviews of the brand new Weezer album, the Black Album, the new self-titled record from the California alternative rock outfit. Two Chains is back with a slightly more introspective take on his latest record, Rap or Go to the League. I'm also going to be covering the new Solange album, which has been a big topic over the past week or so. And we are talking about the new Blue and Oh No album, a long, red-hot Los Angeles summer night. A very lyrical and well-produced kind of story album from two middleweight underground hip-hop champions hailing from the West Coast. I'm also going to be taking on new track reviews of cuts from Mac to Marco, Vampire Weekend, and a discussion as to whether or not rap lyrics should be admitted into court as evidence or as reason to arrest a rapper in terms of a violent rhetoric uh, equating to a threat, that kind of thing. So stick around. We have all of that as well as an exclusive segment from our Let's Argue series posted just to this episode. And uh, yeah, so be be here and you will hear all of those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Anthony Fantano, Needle Drop Podcast, ba-bam. And it's time for a review of the new Weezer record, The Black Album. This is the latest full-length album from alternative rock legends Weezer, who have had a pretty busy past couple of years. We're not even three whole months into 2019, and we already have a Weezer covers album, a new record of originals. And who can forget the band's recent and headache-inducing attempt at writing millennial pop on Pacific Daydream? Weezer has really been back on a somewhat rocky road ever since the release of what I thought was their best album in years, the White Album in 2016. And despite things being a little more lackluster than I'd like recently, I did go into this new album with kind of high hopes. Because from Pacific Daydream, I feel like you really have nowhere to go but up. And also Teal from for all of its flaws, and even though it was a covers album, it was still pretty fun. And a few of the teaser tracks going into this new album I thought were pretty promising. The track Can't Knock the Hustle, which seems almost like a meta-commentary on Rivers' creative process, his work ethic Weezer's miraculous ability to continue to thrive despite lackluster albums and a dwindling market for rock bands. The instrumental on this track felt like a versatile throwback from the 90s, fusing elements of pop and rock and hip-hop. Throw on a refrain in Espanol for good measure. Soy un I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? The song Zombie Bastards is a kind of fun, quirky pop rock tune without any edge to it whatsoever. This song would not hurt a fly. Though the lyrics do sort of seem to focus on haters, shit talkers, naysayers who rivers on this song essentially paints as zombie bastards. Hey, maybe even I'm a zombie bastard. Okay, buddy. You trying to get cut? Uh, the track also features a, a super sweet bridge that I like quite a bit. And even though it drifts the album further into a direction that is not at all reflective of a black album, the piano ballad on High as a Kite is beautiful, it is euphoric, it is deeply moving. We go from dealing with and hating on zombie bastards to Rivers lyrically placing himself in a spot where he has not a care in the world. With no pain, no pleasure, he's just like a 
emotionless husk that has reached a, a zen state. However, my favoritism toward these songs starts to drop around living in LA, which I thought was a very boring piece of pop rock that is trying way too hard to shoot for a wide appeal with its perfectly tracked and calculated instrumentation. I mean, if Rivers and company really wanted to nail a hit on this track, they could have just brought a better song to the table. Not a recording that is so pristine it sounds basically lifeless. Because if anything is going to attract anybody to this song, it's not going to be the lyrics, which are just whining about liking a girl while living in LA and feeling kind of lonely. The track really does bring like this Maroon 5 level of lyrical substance. And you know what, at this point in the track list, I was not worried because I think that Weezer can make a great album, can get by with a good album featuring just like one or two kind of bad or lackluster tracks. I expected at least a couple at this point. But honestly, the second half of this thing really does take a big fat nosedive and basically turns into the sequel of Weezer's Make Believe as the band essentially dishes out another helping of completely soulless pop rock, which is just baffling at this point in 2019 because I feel like it made sense to make an album like Make Believe back when there was more of a radio market for the type of thing Weezer was doing. But the song Just Being Honest, for example, while I don't mind the tune of this track, I actually think at its core it's, it's one of the better songs on the record, but who is lining up to hear a song that sounds like this in 2019? The structure is so formulaic and the performance is so flat and plain and even that by the midpoint, I feel like I get psychic abilities and I can just predict the rest of the song. And then not only the sound, but also the songwriting goes right into the toilet on following tracks like Too Many Thoughts in My Head and The Prince Who Wanted Everything. The Prince honestly might be the corniest thing that Weezer has written this decade. I would read through some of the lyrics, but I already have indigestion. <coughs> Meanwhile, the song Byzantine is like Weezer's attempt at a Kokomo, except they wish it was anywhere near as enjoyable as Kokomo. It's just a fall flat on your face attempt at orchestrating some really tacky tropical flavored pop music. Like this is what your conception of Caribbean style music is if your exposure to it is through uh, top 40 rock hits and uh, video game soundtracks and novelty records. The closer California Snow is another moment on the album where I actually enjoy the, the tune at the core of this track quite a bit. I think the chorus soars beautifully, but the production once again kind of sucks any fun out of the sound of this song. On top of it, it awkwardly kicks off with this like trap style descending <laughs> snare buildup. <laughs> Like Weezer is going sicko mode or something. Ugh, this is so disappointing. Weezer can just literally not dig themselves out of this hole right now, and um, that, that does not make me happy. It really is disappointing for somebody who thinks uh, maybe a few of the band's most hated records are not as bad as some haters make them out to be, who thought that between Everything Will Be Alright and the White Album, we were on a path of healing and growth and progression that was going to be good for the band's sound. And now at this point I feel like we're just in a, in a, in a very different place and I'm not exactly sure uh, uh, where we're headed at this point, truly and, and honestly. I'm feeling a decent too strong four on this thing. Transition into the next review. 
and it is time for a review of the new 2 Chains record, Rap or Go to the League. This is the latest record from Georgia rapper 2 Chains, who despite his age at this point, he's really not that much younger than Jay-Z, is still seen as a relatively fresh face in the current rap landscape. While 2 Chains and at one point Titty Boy has been at it for years, it's still been less than a decade since his Def Jam debut with Based on a True Story. An album I didn't really like all that much when I initially reviewed it, it has grown on me since then, because even though in some respects this album may be super materialistic, kind of basic, a little rudimentary, 2 Chains has a wild, eccentric personality that just... I can't get enough of. When he's at peak 2 Chains anyway. Sadly, most of 2 Chains output past this point has been nowhere near as bold. We have the predictable and unambitious Boats 2, his flop of a collaborative album with Lil Wayne. Pretty Girls Like Trap Music was kind of a return to form, but 2 Chains, unfortunately on this record was kind of drowning in mediocre features. And Rapper Go to the League is not nearly as out there as some 2 Chains fans might want him to be, but it does present an interesting change of pace. They're bangers on here, their pop rap anthems, there are totally over the top and tongue-in-cheek lyrics, yes. But this album is also 2 Chainz's most personal record yet, I guess you could say his most mature. Especially on the first leg of this thing as he trips down memory lane, thinking about playing basketball and his aspirations to keep doing that dominated his youth, rapping about his family and his loved ones that he's lost, the cycle of crime and poverty and violence that many black youth find themselves caught in. It's not exactly the most deep and detailed dive into these topics you're ever going to hear, but being someone who survived these obstacles, 2 Chains does have some compelling things to say on these topics, as well as some regrets to air out. There are moments on these cuts where his delivery falls a little flat like on Threat to Society, but you can tell he's still speaking from the heart as he's riding on top of this classic soulful Ninth Wonder beat. The production on Money in the Way sounds like something fans of Kanye's beats in the early and mid-2000s would love. And even though 2 Chains doesn't litter this entire album with super deep and personal tracks, a lot of the themes from these initial songs on this album do pepper throughout a lot of the lyrics on the rest of this album. So while this album does kick off kind of mellow and emotional, it does not take long for Chains to start coming through with his usual blend of slightly weird and quirky trap bangers. I do like the attitude and the vibe of Statute of Limitations, even if there aren't that many zany quotables coming out of the song. Two Chains and Young Thug on the next track are a pretty logical marriage of voices, but honestly, Thugger demands way more attention on the song than Two Chains does, who mostly just sounds like he's an autopilot. The Travis Scott feature on the next cut, of course, drives the song into a psychedelic wash of effects. And I don't know what to say about this track. Other than that, it's getting really obnoxious that Travis Scott seems to be the special case in rap right now where having him on your track means a top-to-bottom build around his sound and around his style. It's like if you had a particular friend who, when you had over your house, you had to arrange the furniture in it to his liking. And of course, 2 Chains is doing this because he wants to fit in that current wave of trippy, psychedelic, sicko mode trap. But at the end of the day, this track and many recent Travis Scott features just sound like a watered-down version of a song that could have been on that album. An Astroworld Leftover. I actually don't think 2 Chains drops a classic 2 Chains cut on this record until NCAA, where I use good 
see like its lotion is most likely the most ridiculous bar on this entire record. The heat turns up on Mama I Hit a Lick, which features one of the most quirky and clunky instrumentals on the entire album. Two Chains' performance here is insane. Kendrick Lamar's feature is one of the most subdued he's ever done, but there's kind of a strange quality to it that grabs your ear really quickly. Two Chains and Ariana Grande cross paths once again on the track Rule the World, which kind of sounds like a classic pop rap and R&B blend from the 2000s with some gorgeous synth strings and some glamorous pianos and some boom bappy beats. It's pretty formulaic. It's not blowing me away or anything, but it is nice to hear 2 Chains make an effective transition into writing more romantic verses on this thing. I like the song $2 Bill a lot, but with 2 Chains' insistence that he's rare, that he's special, that he's different, he's pretty much written this song already. It was the song I'm Different off of based on a true story. Except now it's got a really great little Wayne and an E-40 feature. The instrumental vibe of both of these tracks is even eerily similar. The song I Said Me is another highlight for me on this record. It is one of the more introspective cuts off of this thing, but it's delivered in this very frank and blunt way where it seems like Two Chains is almost embracing humor a little bit. I mostly like the song for its verses that dive into and unpack some of the dark patterns pathways that have brought Two Chains to this point in his life. Although the vocal sample of My Favorite Things laced into the beat is a little unnecessary. It drags the intro out way too long, and the few shots that it pops up within the core of the track uh, just sounds really tacked on. There are definitely highlights on this record. There are tracks that I see as kind of passable or average for Two Chains, but there are a handful of low points as well. Two Chains' very awkward and kind of sung hook on I'm Not Crazy Life is... is completely horrible. It definitely doesn't do the song's pretty strong theme justice, nor the quality Chance the Rapper and even Kodak Black features. There's the obnoxious Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and then also the closing track Sam, which is... I guess an explanation of how taxes work. It just seems really tone-deaf to drop a track like this given the current state of wealth inequality and how prevalent this conversation is becoming in the political mainstream. Like, obviously these societal problems are not 2 Chain's fault. I don't really care how many millions 2 Chain's has in the bank off of rapping and real estate investments. And I can see in the lyrics he's kind of working his way out of his feelings over this and saying, hey, I've been on both sides, the poverty side and the success side, but honestly it still feels like an out-of-touch lament and a struggle that's hardly worth dwelling over. What exactly the point or the takeaway was for the track, I, I don't know. And why it tops the album off as if it's like this significant emotional statement, I, I don't know why either. Overall, this album is decent. It's got a lot of listenable cuts on it, a handful of pretty good ones. It does get a little shaky toward the end, and I'm not sure if some fans are really going to take all that well to 2 Chains getting kind of deep and kind of woke and maybe even a little uh, politically charged in the first leg of the record. While I don't mind it, and I think it certainly shows a refreshing side uh, of 2 Chains, that's not really been his M.O. up until this point, and I don't know if his fans are really demanding that message or that sound from him. Still feeling a light to decent six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Solange 
record, When I Get Home. This is the latest full-length album from singer and songwriter Solange Knowles, a follow-up to her breakthrough 2016 record, A Seat at the Table. Regardless of what your opinion on her music is, you have to kind of give it to Solange because for years she continued to drop music with very little fanfare in return for it. She practically disappeared off the map after the drop of her 2012 EP, True, which featured wall-to-wall production from Dev Hines, aka Blood Orange, and received somewhat mixed reviews. Solange would spend the next several years pulling together what would be her breakthrough aha artistic moment, A Seat at the Table. A lengthy album that was subtle on presentation, but big on beauty and ideas and social commentary. What Solange lacked in vocal presence on these tracks, she easily made up for with smooth instrumentals and luscious atmospheres, as well as songs and messages that shined despite their shy demeanor. Now, without question, this thing was one of the best records of 2016 and instantly turned Solange into a must-watch artist in the fields of R&B and neo-soul. So, of course, whatever she released next was going to drop with a splash. And before we even get into the substance of this record, Solange has already given us a lot to think and write about. With a promotional film attached to the release of this album on production, we have names like Tyler the Creator, Earl, Panda Bear, Dev Hines, as well as Metro Boomin, Pharrell, Steve Lacey is on here too. This album also boasts features from the likes of Playboy Cardi, as well as Sampha and, uh, and Gucci Mane. Now, even though When I Get Home is not as lengthy or as enveloping as its predecessor, it is a pretty eclectic album with its constant rotation of instrumental palettes and guests. The way this album flows in a lot of respects actually reminds me of the recent Dev Hines' album, the Blood Orange record Negro Swan, in that this album presents a pretty seamless string of tracks that emphasize mood and vibe. Solange seems more content here to be recording motifs and, and sketches than larger and more compartmentalized songs. Which, in theory, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think you can pull together a record that shoots for that style and comes out really great, but truth be told, there's not really a single track on this thing that I think can go toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, with one of the best cuts off of A Seat at the Table, like um, uh, Cranes in the Sky or Don't Touch My Hair. Oddly enough, for an album that runs like a tapestry of tightly woven various ideas, the mix, the atmosphere on this record, it's not very washed out or dreamy or uh, intoxicating. A Seat at the Table had a pretty soft sound that you could really get lost in. And while When I Get Home isn't exactly an explosion of emotion and color, the instrumentals on this record, and even Solange's voice, are a lot more stark and, and bare in their presentation. Which I think could be a positive thing or a negative thing, depending on who's listening to this record, but for me personally, Solange's meek voice often just loses me, especially when she puts herself in a situation where her singing really has to carry the song. Her vocals on tracks like Jared, as well as Time Is, are meandering and sleep-inducing. Her singing on the last leg of My Skin, My Logo serves as one of many examples on this record where her vocals just come off really pitchy, very nasally. I'm not even going to get into her 
wrapping on the first leg of the track. Not only are Solange's volume and range on this album pretty lackluster, but she's not exactly the most expressive singer either. And look, these were issues on her last full-length album too, but with the way these songs and the production were groomed on that LP, they worked around that. Overall, When I Get Home is really leaving me with mixed emotions, because while I'm not really impressed with Solange's execution on this LP, some of the ideas or what she's shooting for on this album shows some real galaxy brain ambition. I enjoy a lot of the eclectic transitions that Solange works in between these tracks. There are moments on this LP where I can hear her trying to embrace some of the newest and weirdest trends in hip-hop music, but apply them to like an R&B or a neo-soul context. With some of the more bare and minimal instrumentals on this thing, the emphasis on repetition, I think the most obvious example of this is on the song Almeida featuring Playboy Cardi, which sounds like Solange doing her best to, to make her album sound like something that could be woven into the track list of Die Lit. There are some other highlights on here that I like quite a bit. The very groovy Stay Flow is great with its subtle beat switches, grimy bass, glistening keys, and Solange's delivery on this track has this very cool, laid-back, tight harmonic quality to it that reminds me of like an old 90s R&B single. Dreams and Beltway are a few of the tracks on this thing that actually work very well despite the vocals being so spotlit. The execution here is pretty beautiful and smooth and sweet, especially on the song Dreams with its themes of youth and aspiration. I also love the fusion of drums and synth bass and chirpy vocal harmonies on the song Bins. The CP time bars that Solange works into this track are hilarious and in one of many instances of her embracing humor on this record. Also a show of her personality coming a lot more through her writing than her performance. But outside of that, there wasn't a whole lot about this record that really stopped me in my tracks and left a huge impression on me. Much of the 39 minutes and 19 tracks on this thing just kind of breezes by, as pleasant as it is. A majority of the vibes that Solange drums up on this record are pretty decent, but upon closer inspection, the songwriting details and the faint but quality performances just aren't really there. As much as I admire some portions of this album for being pretty adventurous just kind of feels like a step back. Granted, a lot of what Solange is taking a step back with on this album, she's most likely conscious of it. I guess she's just feeling confident to let it all hang out on this new LP. And a lot of hardcore fans will most likely appreciate this album for that reason, as Solange's artistic aesthetic and her messaging usually precede her vocal chops. I'm feeling a decent six on this thing. Transition! into the next review. It's time for a review of the new blue and oh no record, A Long Red Hot Los Angeles Summer Night. This is a new collaborative album from two underground hip hop middleweight champions, Blue and Oh No, who have both dropped quite a few albums over the years and have existed in the same atmosphere for quite a while. I'm surprised we haven't seen more crossover from these two already at this point. I did go into this new album a little skeptical because a lot of Blue's recent output has been kind of hit or miss, but his catalog truly has everything from modern classics like Below the Heavens, weird detours, surprise collabs, underappreciated gems like his 
lo-fi hip-hop double album opus, Good To Be Home. And what blue fan can forget Warner Brothers kneecapping his shot at the mainstream with his New York record in 2011. And he also has projects under his belt that are so messy they make you worry about his well-being. Oh No has been dropping albums for a bit longer and is almost as prolific as his brother, Madlib. And his relative obscurity in the grander scheme of hip-hop does not reflect this man's talents. Especially considering how much material he's dropped, who he's collaborated with, and how great he is at strained together these samples of soul and funk and jazz into very coherent and creative hip-hop beats. So this new record from Blue and Oh No, it is 17 tracks, 48 minutes, and I think it is defined by two clear characteristics. One, cohesion as Blue and Oh No complement each other's respective styles so well, and not in such a way where they cancel each other out and just go on autopilot because working together is, is easy. Actually the opposite. I think Blue and Oh No bring the best out in each other on this record and cause one another to get more ambitious. And then there's also clarity. I think this album also brings a supreme amount of clarity, and what I mean by that is that both of these artists are working at a level of precision and sharpness that I have not heard from either of them in a long time, like almost a decade. Lyrically and flow-wise, Blue is in top form on Pop Shots as well as the Lost Angels Anthem. Both of these tracks I highly recommend as a taste test for anybody who is unfamiliar with these artists or is just trying to uh, get a bit of an intro to this record. Meanwhile, Ono's production on this thing is consistently colorful and eclectic and, and groovy, really defined and really lush, to the point where it's almost like he's orchestrating live instrumentation in these instrumentals. And there's some pretty stunning and quality guest singers on this thing, too. Brandy Price's harmonized vocals on the track Murder Case are bold and authoritative and ear-grabbing. Kazia's cool and laid-back singing on the Lost Angels anthem is really sensual and fantastic, too. The instrumental moods on this record kind of range from nocturnal and sort of psychedelic, like on Boogie to Flex, which has all these twinkling, cascading notes overlapping on each other. The instrumental for Roundabout Midnight is villainous and punchy, features these sour piano chords and gargantuan bass and horn hits, like something out of a vintage cartoon or an old-school detective show, but just flipped into a hard-as-diamonds beat. There are multiple instrumentals on this thing that just contain mad villain levels of genius, like the plucky lead melody samples on the track Stalkers, which uh, are pretty cinematic. A lot of the time on this thing, Ono doesn't sound like he's just merely making a beat on this album, but uh, creating a sense of place and, and making a scene for Blue to act within as he drops passionate odes to L.A. or comes through with conceptual cuts like Robbery, a story song where Blue is literally robbed. Following not too long after this, we have the song Liquor Store, which is like a heated game of phone tag where they're kind of reacting to the story from the robbery up until this point and how they're going to handle it. And this is just the start of the smart and vivid concept tracks that are peppered throughout this record. You have the incredibly paranoid Stalkers, whose title definitely reflects its story. You have the brash gun talk on Pop Shots, and the way this track narratively glides into Do the Crime and Murder Case, Facing Time, The Jail Cipher, and the ending cut Fresh Out. While it may not be incredibly clear at the start of the record, this album ties up into a pretty dark story, but delivers a mostly happy and strong and coherent ending. This album overall is so well done, and I'm surprised I'm not hearing more fanfare over it. I mean, granted Blue and Oh No aren't exactly reinventing themselves on this album, and the story being told on this record isn't the most 
original under the sun, but it does flow very well. And as far as execution goes, Blue and Oh No are putting out some of their best work to date on this thing. This record has hooks, it has great quality verses, it has grit, it has a narrative, it has personality, it has wonderful instrumental flavors. I think the biggest shortcoming that this album offers, unfortunately, are some of the features that create a little bit of a lull at the midpoint of the record. Given the concept Blue is coming through with on here, I can understand why he would want a bit of a rotating cast of characters around him as he is kind of progressing through this story. But there are some guest verses on here that maybe come off a bit too cringy and macho, or maybe a bit overly simplistic and basic lyrically. But despite all that, I love this record quite a bit. It's a really great West Coast hip-hop album, and I'm excited to see Blue actually lighting a fire under his ass and getting ambitious once again. I'm feeling a decent too strong eight on this thing. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. And we are going to be talking about Mac DeMarco, new album on the way. Here comes the Cowboy. The title of this new single, Nobody. Uh, multiple people have commented on how oddly similar uh, this is to the rollout of the new Mitski album that came out last year, uh, Be the Cowboy, Nobody, off of, uh, off of that record. Um, don't know why there's so much overlap here, but, uh, but I guess there is. Uh, before we get into the song, I do want to mention really quickly our sponsor in this video, the good people over at the Ridge Wallet. They make these nifty, metal-plated, minimalist, clean wallets that fit right into your front pocket. Replace that disgusting, bulky leather wallet today that you have in your pocket. Uh, use the link down below with promo code MELON to get 10% off your first order. All right, let's, uh, let's give this track nobody a shot. Mac DeMarco, nobody, 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 nobody. Uh, ba bam I'm really pleased by that. That's a lovely song. You know, it's it's often that sometimes Mac DeMarco will get a little lost in the sauce of his atmosphere or just how uh, downplayed he wants a song to be, um, but in its stripped back state, this is a really great song. Lyrically, I think it's one of his more emotionally compelling and, uh, and thoughtful tracks. Um, I do think this theme of not getting a second chance and, uh, and everything is, is quite sad and, uh, 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 maybe not the first time I've heard somebody put it the way that he's put it, but, you know, pretty profound. Um, I loved the uh, very gentle guitars. I liked the sparse drumming that kept the pace of the track pretty well. And I liked uh, the the slightly weary and uh, subtly wailing, what sounded like synths, just kind of softly swelling in the background, which I thought added a very nice and uh, uh, a simple but essential piece of color to the backdrop of the song. Uh, vocally, Mac DeMarco uh, has sort of mastered this knack for 
really downplaying his singing, downplaying his vocals, but still uh, delivering in such a way where he sounds legitimately forlorn and, um, I guess, uh, heartbroken. If that is a vibe that he's actually shooting for, I think he's just great at this point at, uh, you know, not overstating what exactly he's trying to get across emotionally. And, uh, you know, without having to uh, uh, go over the top or uh, try to express too hard in his music, uh, actually coming through with something that's pretty emotionally resonant. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually wouldn't mind if we heard more ballads of this quality, but also this subtlety on this new full-length album. I'm not exactly sure what else to say at this point. I really do love the simple instrumental. I think the tune and the song are great. The production is very stark and uh, very basic and straightforward, but effective. And performance was fine. I like how Mac uh, essentially was able to pace this song so slowly uh, without necessarily losing my attention or losing the flavor of the track or losing the appeal of the track. Um, it's a really intoxicating song, you know, in its simplicity and uh, instantly puts you into the powerfully, potently sad mood uh, that he is trying to convey on this track. The loneliness and the longing of this song are, are, pretty, uh, are pretty strong. You know, pretty strong despite how soft and easygoing the presentation of the track is. Uh, I think I'm going to leave it at that. I love this. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. It's great! All right. Vampire Weekend has put out two more tracks from their full-length album, Father of the Bride. Looks like it is shaping up to be an 18-song release, and I'm actually very um, happy to uh, to see 2021 on here because I do think that is a great track. I thought that might have been like a bit of a B-side leftover sort of thing, but that is a very short, pretty ballad, so I'm, I'm very uh, happy that track uh, made it onto the record, so uh, I digress. Ezra uh, teaming up with Steve on a track over here, dropping another song, Big Blue. We're going to give both tracks a try, going to give my thoughts on each of them. Let's go. All right, first of those two tracks, Big Blue, uh, I got to say first impressions here, not really all that into it. I think I wanted a lot more from this track, not only in terms of of length, because I don't think it's as satisfying at its one minute and 48 second runtime as a track like uh, 2021 is, for example, because I, I think that song uh, hits you in this very short, brief, cute, beautiful way in that span whereas Big Blue feels like it's progressing towards something that doesn't really happen. Uh, on top of that, I'm not really into the instrumental all that much either. A lot of people have been kind of freaking out about this song and likening it to uh, the sound of like old school jam bands and that kind of thing. And I can certainly hear that in the guitar strumming and uh, like some of the slid, slinky guitar leads that kind of wail in a bluesy fashion in the instrumental. However, um, I, I feel like that's kind of put together in a really rickety, clunky, unlikable way. It feels almost as if you took a bunch of sounds of a jam band, specifically the guitars, and then tried to assemble it and track it in the same way that you would like a hip-hop beat or something. Despite the fact that aesthetically, it does have some overlap with jam band music. Um, it sounds way too ham-fisted. Like, it's not nearly as smooth or as groovy as you might like a jam band song to vibe or flow. Uh, and because of that, 
not only because of that tracking and also because of, um, I don't know, just the way that Ezra wrote this song. It does kind of still have that uh, mellow and kind of regal uh, art pop vampire weekend quality to it. Uh, because the song at the core of it, I think, doesn't really apply to a jam band context, the application of these guitars also feels a little awkward. Um, maybe when I hear the entire LP, the song will grow on me. But uh, again, initial reaction here, uh, not all that into it. And I hope any other attempts at, you know, shooting for this sound on this album uh, are a bit smoother and, um, I don't know, just... Uh, uh, have better uh, uh, have a better instrumental uh, makeup and performance than than this. Uh, let's move on to the next track, Sunflower, featuring Steve Lacey. Not too much longer at two minutes and seventeen seconds, but because Steve is in the mix, I'm expecting a kind of a big change of pace here in terms of sound. So uh, let's give it a shot. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm not going to say I was blown away by that track, but I definitely liked it a lot more. The instrumental was really punchy and funky and fun, and if anything sticks out about that song, it is that super bold, angular guitar line that uh, Ezra sings in unison with that multiple times on the track. It really is the selling point of the song. I mean, the entire track is literally built around this guitar and bass line, and I like it quite a bit. Uh, it is very sticky. It is very catchy. However, I will say that I'm not exactly sure if this sound and this vibe um, is, is this Vampire Weekend. Did Vampire Weekend really put its own effective, distinct spin on this idea or this concept? In my opinion, not really. If you had handed me this track out of the blue and told me that this is, you know, some random new up-and-coming psych band uh, from Australia inspired by the sounds of like a Tame Impala or something like that, I, I probably believe you. I mean, the, to me, while Kevin Barnes' trademark vocals uh, obviously aren't in the track, uh, this even sounds like a track that of Montreal could have written, like uh, in their... I guess, uh, satanic panic days, or, you know, maybe even a, a more rock oriented track off Sunlantic twins or something like that, you know, before they went super zany with hissing fauna. Um, you know, this, this sounds like a track that could have existed in that era as well. You know, it sounds like a current funky, very drum heavy, um, take on the sounds of cla of classic psych pop and psych rock, maybe even a a bit of an unknown mortal orchestra thing, which is fine. I like that sound. It's a decent sound. Uh, and certainly um, this guitar line that I imagine Steve Lacey worked into this thing does this sound a lot of justice, but do I find it to be the most memorable song? Um, do I find it to be the most memorable style or aesthetic for Vampire Weekend? Not necessarily. To me, this is like a catchy guitar lick that has been kind of like stretched out into a two-minute song. Unfortunately, walking away from these two new tracks a little underwhelmed, not nearly as impressed as I was with Harmony Hall and 2021, both of which I loved quite a bit. Um, wondering what exactly the future holds for this Vampire Weekend record now, because judging off these four tracks that are all over the place, um, what exactly is the band going to be shooting for at this point? What exactly are they going to be delivering at this point? Uh, I'm not even sure if they know, but I guess we'll all see when we get there. Let's talk about a question over here. Should rap lyrics be admissible 
in court as evidence against a defendant? Or could rap lyrics be threatening enough to even be considered a crime, a terroristic threat, uh, which is exactly what this story right here next to me revolves around? Uh, as Pitchfork and other outlets have reported, we have 21 Savage, Yo Gotti, Styles P, and more rappers named as advisors on a rap music primer being filed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is currently hearing the case of Jamal Knox v. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The case revolves around Knox, a rapper who was 19 when he was sentenced to two to six years in prison in 2014. He was charged with terroristic threats and witness intimidation, with prosecutors alleging his lyrics targeted specific police officers in Pittsburgh. The case has made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, where Knox's lawyers uh, assert that his First Amendment rights are being violated. Uh, now, Run the Jewels Killer Mike and a group of other rappers, including Chance the Rapper, Meek Mill, 21 Savage, Yo Gotti, Styles P, and more, have filed an amicus curiae brief in the Supreme Court case in support of Knox, as the New York Times reports. The brief contains a primer on rap music and hip-hop, as well as intricate breakdowns of the lyrics that were condemned as terroristic threats. So, um, essentially, the two questions here in this situation, and I will address the first one that relates directly to this case, uh, should these rap lyrics be considered terroristic threats? Over here via Genius, we actually have the lyrics in question uh, from Mr. Knox that are being considered true threats, these terroristic threats. Keep in mind, these lyrics are being laced into a cover or a version of NWA's Fuck the Police, which he himself sort of remixed or reoriented, and that song in itself is a protest track. The whole point of that song is to be angry toward police, and he's sort of following through on that concept and theme. Now, look, um, I'm a huge advocate of free speech and the First Amendment, even in the midst of this current online sociopolitical landscape where most people who say that are just kind of like right-wing hucksters who don't actually care about free speech principles, and they would never talk about uh, a story like this because they're actually not concerned uh, about topics like this. Um, I'm still a big advocate of the First Amendment and free speech, and uh, I do believe that there are legal precedents and there is, you know, logical reasoning uh, behind actually uh, jailing people or uh, fining people or having some kind of legal action against a person who puts forward a credible threat. And some of the check boxes, in my opinion, that would make for a credible threat uh, are, hey, the specifics of what you're going to do, who you're going to do it to, when and where. And it would seem like on the surface, like, yeah, some of that is actually being brought to the table here with this lyric. However, like one huge requirement in rapping is is rhyming. And like, do we really honestly think this dude, this police officer shift is over at three o'clock and that this guy knows it and that he didn't just say three so that he could rhyme it with sleep. But does he actually know where the dude sleeps? He doesn't say it in this song. Just by this lyric alone, uh, Knox hasn't exactly proven that he actually knows this information. It seems more like he's using violent rhetoric here and just a few words that have specific qualities to them in order to create a rhymed lyric, and that's it. Again, at least that's what it seems like to me on the surface. In order to prove that this is a real threat, at least this would be my argument, I feel like Pennsylvania would need to prove, does Knox actually know this information? What is the proof that he understands where this dude actually sleeps and that he knows 
his shift is over at three and that this was actually planned. Um, I think that they would need to have more information than this on the table, this random lyric over here, in order to prove that. Like, are there any sort of text messages or uh, uh, emails or anything like that where he's actually like uh, talking to people uh, that might have sort of uh, planned to help him with, uh, with doing this thing? And that, I think, leads to the other question that this topic raises, and that is whether or not rap lyrics should be admitted in a court case to prove whether or not someone did the crime. Let's go the next step and say that this is not just a threat, but this is literally something Knox did. And now we're hearing a rap lyric about it in retrospect. I think a, a lot of you may remember recently there was a lot of coverage around uh, uh, YNW Melly because he's been pinned down on a murder case and a lot of people are citing lyrics from his song Murder on My Mind now. And look, I'm not saying that we couldn't have a scenario where someone commits a murder and then they put lyrics about that murder in a rap song, in a rock song, in a metal song. It could be any kind of song, okay? You've, you've done the crime and then you have written a song about that crime, and maybe there are even some specifics in the crime uh, that you've worked into the song. Surely those lyrics, uh, I think, can be used to, hey, if he mentions some kind of specific thing in this song, we could investigate into that particular thing and see if there's any sort of lead coming out of that. But rappers rap about committing crimes all the time in their songs, and we know up until this point uh, because of how many rappers have been outed as liars and fakes and exaggerators and so on and so forth, you can't believe every single rap lyric you hear. Uh, again, sure, if uh, a rapper is being implicated in a crime and they've been dumb enough to actually rap about doing that crime in a song and there's some kind of specific there to those lyrics that you can go off of in terms of an investigation, I mean, I guess I'm open to that, but bringing that rapper to court and exhibit A, the lyrics in this song, jury, what you think, you know, obviously uh, <laughs> it's a very abridged version of a court case, uh, but still, I think you're going to need more substantial evidence than whatever lyrics uh, a rapper has, has worked into uh, a song. You know, a, a rap song isn't exactly like a confession for many reasons, but the biggest of which is hip hop's history, undeniable history, uh, with just kind of flexing, bending, exaggerating uh, the truth or just literally putting out lyrics that are nowhere near the truth and have absolutely no connection to it whatsoever. So when it comes to this case and putting Mr. Knox in prison over these lyrics and perceiving them as terroristic threats... I don't think I agree, and I think um, a worthwhile argument could be made that that is not the case. Now, not to get too political here, I know some of y'all get mad when that's the case, uh, but listen, here's the thing. The current ratio of right-wing to left-wing justices on the Supreme Court right now, uh, I mean, if, if I'm to go out on a limb here and guess that uh, the right-wing judges are probably going to be less perceptive uh, to Jamal Knox's lawyer's arguments uh, than the left-wing judges are going to be in this case. Um, it, this, this, it, it may not be looking too good uh, for, for, this, for this case. Um, and I'm not exactly sure uh, if someone like Brett Kavanaugh, for example, is going to be reading over uh, this briefing, you know, filed by Chance and Killer Mike and, and Meek 
and uh, taking it all that seriously. I'm, I'm not sure. But hopefully uh, the justices listen to reason and uh, hopefully they find the uh, uh, arguments made by Mr. Knox's lawyers compelling. Hopefully they find uh, this briefing compelling. And uh, uh, hopefully, uh, once again, this is not um, uh, a regular thing. Uh, putting rappers or putting people in jail for rapping a certain thing in a song. Because the number of rappers who actually do everything they say and carry out what they threaten is so small, where exactly do you set the bar for jailing someone over a lyric or using that lyric against them as evidence? If we're literally going to take every rap lyric we run across at face value, we're going to be putting a lot of people in prison. Pusha T is going to jail for, for the next 30, 40 years. So I'm going to leave it at that. Those are my thoughts. 85% of hip-hop lyrics will not age well at all. Dude, I, I hate to break it to you, but 85% of everything will, will, <laughs> will not age well at all. Uh, most music that is released and recorded, regardless of decade or era, is just like very basic, trendy, forgettable, or, uh, you know, based in artistic red herrings that really don't end up leading anywhere. Historically speaking, it's always the cream that rises to the top, and honestly, 15% is, is not a bad takeaway if we were to separate the cream, as it were, uh, from the rest of music that, over the test of time, is going to be proven to just be utter garbage, or just forgettable, or unnecessary outside of the context of the trends that it exists within. <laughs> And that is going to do it for this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, everybody. Thank you for listening. I want to give a shout out to Jonah for putting together this episode and every episode of the podcast. Make sure whatever platform you are listening to this on, you are subscribing, you are rating, you're giving us a, a review, some favorability so we continue to grow on this platform. Also, shout out to our social media platforms where you can catch Everything we do, every piece of content we drop, twitter.com slash the needle drop, a Fantano on Instagram, YouTube, the needle drop, YouTube, Fantano, and of course, the needle drop.com to not let a single thing that we post to the internet slip by you. Uh, we will catch you guys in the next episode of the needle drop podcast. You're the best, Anthony Fantano, podcast reviews roundup forever. Sure.